0: Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is episode number 24, part three of Article 250, the grounding electrode system. This section, Roman numeral part three, looks at eight different code-approved ways to make a connection to the earth. In today's episode, we won't discuss the terminology or basic concepts that relate to the purpose of a grounding system. If you need those for proper understanding, please go back to episode 22. Those topics are thoroughly discussed there. Now, Roman numeral part three deals with the grounding electrodes and their associated conductors. So it's helpful to note that the code does the following. First, it introduces the concept of an electrode system. That is, all of the available qualifying electrodes that are present shall be tied together into a single electrode system. Then the electrodes themselves are described. After that, the code circles around again and describes the installation requirements for the same electrodes. Finally, it describes how to connect to the electrode system. If you grab the show notes, you'll see that there's a table there that puts the concepts side by side, which is rather helpful. So we will start with the grounding electrode system. You find that heading in 250.50. Now it's not an accident that A, it describes a grounding system as a system, and B, that it is in singular format. It does not say systems. A system is a sum of components, as is the grounding electrode system. And a facility generally is not permitted to have more than one grounding electrode system. Wherever that possibility exists, A jumper is required, usually external to the building, to join them together. 250.52 gives an approved list of grounding electrodes, but these are divided up into several types. The first three, where present, must be used, but they are not installed by the electrician. Number one is the cold water pipe. Number two is a metal in-ground support structure. Number three, a concrete-encased electrode which is usually the rebar, the footing or foundation. So that would be not the electrician, that would be the plumber, the iron worker and the concrete contractor. However, if none of these are available, then the options are those that an electrician would install. Ground rings, ground rods, listed electrodes and ground plates. Additionally, other underground metal structures that are not part of the above installation are able to be but not required to be used. So where present, one through seven must be used. Where one through seven do not exist, four through eight may be installed and or used. So as an exercise, you may want to write out the eight types of grounding electrodes. And then bracket the first three and write other trades beside it. Bracket the first seven and write, must use if they exist and then bracket items four through seven and write electrical trade. And then you can draw an arrow to number eight and write optional. So what are the electrodes? They, along with some limitations, are listed in 250.52. So I'll discuss them individually and include some relevant parts of 250.53 and 54 also. These give the installation and connection instructions. Our first one in 250.52 is number one, the metal underground water pipe. A metal underground water pipe that's in direct contact with the earth for 10 feet or more. And this would include well casings that are bonded to the pipe and any other bonding that's around it. um, That is the metal underground water pipe that for years we've used as our main grounding source. In fact, in many old buildings, that is the only grounding source. It also tells us here that if there are fittings that could be removed, or there are insulation joints, dielectric fittings, that we have to jumper across these so that the continuity of the metal pipe is is there in the whole building. Item number two is a metal in-ground support structure. That used to have a different name. If you go back a couple of code cycles for years, This was the the building steel, right? The red iron steel that holds a a commercial or industrial building together. But it got renamed. One or more metal in-ground support structure that is in direct contact with the earth, vertically for 10 feet or more, with or without concrete encasement, is able to be used. If multiple metal in-ground support structure elements exist in a structure it's permissible to bond only one to use as the grounding electrode system. And so the informational note kind of paints the picture of what this is. It could include, but it's not limited to, pilings, casings, and other structural metal. And if the structural metal is not driven into the earth, it could be that it is a metal frame or building that has structural members that are connected with hold-down bolts to a concrete encased electrode. And so then the metal structure becomes an extension of item number three, which is a concrete encased electrode. Our code tells us that a concrete encased electrode shall consist of at least 20 feet of, and then we get two choices. It's either 20 feet of one or more bare or zinc galvanized or other electrically conductive coated steel reinforcing bars or rods, not less than a half inch in diameter. Or it could be a four gauge bare copper conductor. It could be larger too. Same with a half inch rebar. It could be larger. Either one is fine. And the rebar doesn't have to be like welded together or anything to get the 20 foot length. It tells us that the usual steel tie wires are adequate as are other methods like exothermic welding. So... That particular grounding mechanism is kind of unique. First of all, we we typically in the field don't call it a concrete encased electrode. It's a for ground, and we'll discuss that here in just a second. The metal components, that is the, the rebar or the copper wire, has to be encased by at least two inches of concrete. And it can be located horizontally within the footing or foundation of the building. Or it could also be placed vertically if it's like a deep piling or something like that, or perhaps it's a, a, a structure where, you know, maybe it's in sandy soil and they drill down and they place 20-foot caissons in uh, a footing. That works as well. You know, some, some cell towers, for example, utilize that method to be able to firmly anchor the cell tower down. So there's different ways that this could be installed. There is an informational that gives us a little bit of a warning because sometimes we have rebar that is uh, epoxy coated. Other times there might be a vapor barrier that's installed between the concrete and the soil itself because of perhaps the acidity or alkalinity of the soil. So the informational note in the code book says that concrete were installed with insulation, vapor barriers, films, or similar items that separate the concrete from the earth is not considered to be in direct contact with the earth. In other words, the metal that's in that, in that concrete, if it's isolated by a vapor barrier and doesn't have earth contact, can't qualify as a concrete encased electrode. So at this point, we better chase down a bit of a rabbit hole because in the field, no one calls this grounding electrode a concrete encased electrode. We all call it a ground. During World War II, the U.S. Army required a good grounding system, specifically for bomb storage and ammunition vaults near Tucson and Flagstaff, Arizona. Conventional grounding systems don't work well in these locations. It's desert terrain. The water table is hardly existent. There's very little rainfall. You have extremely dry soil. And to get even a, a decent connection to the ground, to earth, would have required hundreds of feet of ground rods and so that was not the best solution to protect the buildings from lightning strikes. So in 1942, Herbert G. Eufer was a vice president and engineer at Underwriters Laboratories and he was hired as a consultant for the U.S. Army. So Eufer was initially tasked with solving ground resistance problems at these installations in Arizona And he did some some testing and his findings in the 1940s proved the effectiveness of a concrete encased grounding electrode. And the specs for these that were finally written up for the military installations required a 5-ohm or less ground connection for the lightning protection system for all ammunition and pyrotechnic storage sites. And this was first done at the Navajo Ordnance Depot in Flagstaff and the davis Monthan. Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona. And the initial design was a concrete encased grounding electrode of half inch, 20 foot long reinforcing bars near the bottom of a two foot deep concrete footing for all of these buildings. And then test readings were done over a 20 year period. And the test readings proved that this was very, very effective. The test readings varied between two to five ohms to ground. And so this was also implemented throughout all of the Arizona test sites and then in other desert locations. After the war, Eufor continued to, to test his grounding methods and wrote them up in a paper. They were published at an IEEE conference in 1963. IEEE stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, which is a large and respected professional association that most electrical engineers are members of. The use of a concrete-encoast grounding electrode was added to the National Electrical Code in 1968. Now, at the time, the description was just a minimum 4-gauge copper conductor inside of at least 20 feet of a footing or foundation, and it was not required to be used if other grounding electrodes were present. Then, in 1978, the NEC added or allowed half-inch or better rebar to be used as the conductor in the grounding electrode, not just a 4-gauge copper conductor. Then, in the 2005 edition of the NEC, this grounding method moved up in the rankings. Rather than being a permitted electrode, it became a required electrode. Where present in new construction, it had to be used. A common way to provide a connection without risking the copper wire disappearing overnight is to stub up a piece of rebar and during rough-in, run the required grounding electrode conductor to that stub that sticks up. So going back to the time when that code change took effect, first the rebar folks had to be trained to provide that stub and then the framers had to be trained not to cut it off and actually let it stick through the bottom plate. Now for inspection purposes, that sometimes prove problematic for various jurisdictions. In Washington state, there is a WAC rule or state code permission to stub up two pieces of rebar at least 20 feet apart, so that continuity can be verified at a later time. Now that's a workaround in my state because oftentimes the inspector is unable to verify the grounding electrode before the footings are actually poured. In fact, the electrical permit may not have even been pulled yet. So the inspection of view for grounds varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So please check your local rules to see how your age qualifies these installations. And in the 2020 NEC, the idea of permitting the stub up as an extension of the grounding electrode was also included in the text. And so you can see how this uh, this term... You for ground, even though it's not found in the code book, how the uh, installation of this particular um, grounding electrode has evolved over the years in our code language. And over the years, the term for ground has become synonymous with any type of concrete-enclosed grounding conductor, whether it conforms to UFRA's original grounding scheme or not. From the perspective of an effective grounding electrode, a concrete encased electrode is really hard to beat. All right, think about it. Not only do you have a large amount of surface area to serve as a connection to the earth, it also gives the same ground potential for the entire perimeter of the building. That's a way, way better setup than a couple of ground rods at one end of a building. It, um, there's, there's no comparison, really. All right, moving on to the fourth grounding electrode that's described. Number four is a ground ring. A ground ring encircling the building or structure in direct contact with the earth has to consist of at least 20 feet of bare copper conductor, not smaller than 2 gauge, and it has to be installed not less than 30 inches below grade. Now you'll notice this measurement repeated for ground rods that are laid in the trench because you're unable to drive them, or ground plates. All three of these require at least... 30 inches of cover. And the assumption here is that 30 inches of cover on top of the grounding electrode gets you below the permanent moisture level. Item number five are rod and pipe electrodes. And there there are two parts to this description. One of them speaks of grounding electrodes of pipe, and that's literally three-quarter inch pipe galvanized. And the other type is for manufactured rods. Rod and pipe electrodes shall not be less than eight feet in length and shall consist of the following materials. So item number one is a grounding electrode of pipe or conduit made of trade size, three quarter inch or better of steel, outer surface galvanized. And that was was our original grounding electrode, right? Some scrap pipe that we hoisted off of the plumber's truck flattened one end, pounded into the dirt with a sledgehammer. And if you so desired, you could still use that method today. However, most of us would probably just get a couple of ground rods from the supply house. So item number two in that list is rod type grounding electrodes of stainless steel and copper or zinc coated steel. They shall be at least five eighths in diameter unless they are listed. So here we either have a construction requirement or if that is not met, the rods shall be listed. And a quick perusal of the internet will show that a number of manufacturers do produce half-inch listed electrodes. Grounding electrodes shall be driven flush with grade. And if you are unable to drive them vertically, then you may drive them at a 45-degree angle. If that is still not possible because rock bottom is encountered, then they may be laid in a trench with 30 inches of minimum cover. Then the question is, how many do you need? Well, only one, if you can prove to the inspector that the rod has 25 ohms to ground or less resistance. Now, seeing that this would in most cases have to be hired out to a third-party testing agency, most of us drive the supplementary ground rod at least 6 feet away And then the ohms to ground is no longer a code issue. And again, this is from the perspective of our electrical code. You may be doing grounding and bonding for other types of systems where 25 ohms to ground is not sufficient. The cell tower industry quite often still requires five ohms to ground or less, but that's not a requirement in our code. Number six then goes on to describe other listed electrodes. And it's a very brief statement. If you just read the statement and didn't really know what is being talked about here, you'd probably kind of scratch your head. It just says, other listed grounding electrodes shall be permitted. So typically this section refers to chemical rods or electrolytic electrodes. But if some other listed process is invented in the future, it could also live in this section. An electrolytic grounding electrode consists of a hollow copper tube with pores or weep holes in it. The tube is filled with a natural earth salt and desiccants and moisture mixes with the salts to form an electrolytic solution that continuously seeps into the surrounding backfill material. It keeps it moist, keeps it high in ions. In other words, it keeps it highly conductive. And this electric, electrolytic, it's a mouthful, electrode is installed into an augered hole and then backfilled with a conductive clay mixture. So often these are employed where traditional grounding electrodes can't be driven. Perhaps the soil is much too rocky or the soil itself has very, very poor conductivity. Now, they do have one drawback. First of all, they're, they're an excellent, excellent ground, uh, grounding electrode. Very, very good contact to the earth. But the drawbacks are is that they have to be checked from time to time and the electrolyte solution replenished. They are also incredibly expensive being a Uh, A low-volume listed item, they're expensive to purchase and, of course, expensive to install. But they perform really, really well. Item number seven in the list are plate electrodes. Each plate shall have two square feet of surface area. And if they are made of iron or steel, have to be at least a quarter inch thick. If they're of a non-ferrous or non-rusting metal, they may be quite a bit thinner, 0.06 inches. It's almost a foil. <laughs> so you have, you know, two square feet of surface area buried 30 inches deep. When you buy them as a, as a made electrode, uh, they have a little nub on them that you can tie your grounding electrode conductor to with an acorn. So as we look at the rules in, in subsequent sections, you'll see that ground rods and ground plates are often lumped together with the same set of rules. Well, why is that? Well, if you go back and do a little bit of high school math, dig out the formula for the surface area of a cylinder. Right? Area equals 2 pi RH. So 2 pi times the radius times the height. You can ignore the top and bottom of the ground rod. Uh, that's negligible. But if you take that for a standard ground rod, 2 times 3.14 times 5 sixteenths, right? That's half of the diameter. Radius uh, is 5 sixteenths because the diameter is 5 eighths. And then you multiply it by the height of 8 feet or 96 inches. You end up with 188.4 square inches. So about 1.3 square feet of surface area for standard ground rod. A three-quarter inch diameter ground rod is slightly better, 226 square inches or 1.6 square feet. The surface area of ground rods and ground plates is rather similar, so the burial depth and the conditions, the connection requirements, they're often just lumped together. A plate is required to be buried with at least 30 inches of soil, as is a ground rod that's laid in a ditch. And a plate is also not to be required to be connected by a copper conductor larger than 6-gauge, even if Table 250.66 calls for a larger size. And the same is true of ground rods. So those are the grounding electrodes that if present were required to use, or if none are present, we would install. There is one left. It's item number eight, and it's entitled other local metal underground systems or structures. That too is a mouthful, (laughs) but this is one that's not required to be used even if present. It describes it briefly. It says, other local metal underground systems are structures such as piping systems, underground tanks, and underground metal well casings that are not bonded to a metal water pipe. Right? If it was bonded to a metal water pipe, we would have already included it in the grounding electrode system. But this is something that, that stands alone. So times, opportunity knocks, and it provides an available grounding electrode that's not among the first seven. The original code proposal relied on substantiation from an installation that utilized an abandoned well casing to provide a low-impedance ground for a cell site. And at the time, there was no express permission or prohibition in the NEC to be able to do that. So a fellow inspector here in Spokane documented that particular installation well enough that it grew into this short extra permission that is item number eight today. Again, it's not required that we use it if it happens to be on site, but it is a possibility. So we would be rather remiss if we didn't point out that there are some things that definitely, under no circumstances, should be used as a grounding electrode for the electrical system. And these all make sense. There are three different ones, but these all make sense if you think about what the grounding electrode system is to accomplish. If you recall, under normal operation, stabilize the system voltage and provide a ground reference. And under abnormal conditions, such as a lightning event, limit voltage differentials by providing a path to ground for the overvoltage. Remember that, in essence, you're trying to build a leaky capacitor. A grounding system is there to accept a charge and dissipate it effectively. So 250.52B is entitled not permitted for grounding. And all three of these make sense. First of all, aluminum grounding electrodes, they corrode, they oxidize. They, like all other aluminum connections, if they're not treated well, they become a very poor connection. The same would be true of a grounding electrode made of aluminum. Gas pipe. If you can't figure out why this is a bad idea, well, maybe maybe the electrical field is not the field for you. Um, the gas pipe has to be bonded, but it's always bonded on the customer side of the meter, and that is a different topic. And finally, and this was added to the code recently, the equal potential bonding grid of a pool. Yes, you do not want to be swimming in the confines of a lightning arrest system. This prohibition was added recently to the NEC because, in fact, there were some inspection jurisdictions that thought bonding to the pool grid as a grounding electrode would be a good idea. All right, this is a big topic in just a few paragraphs of the NEC, and I'm going to do a follow-up episode on specifically on ground rods, ground resistance testing and the use of supplementary grounding, or grounding that is permitted but not required by the NEC. In some cases, it's definitely useful. But at other times, you realize that the plans designer must have just done a copy and paste, and the supplementary grounding is not really providing any benefits. But for now, we'll leave it there. So thank you so much for listening to this edition of Code Talk. We hope you got value out of this podcast and ask that you please share it around. And if you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes to this and other episodes. I'll try to get them up in the next couple of days. And until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.